Let's now turn to the Lord in prayer. Our great Father, again, we we give you praise that you are the creator that we have sung about in our first hymn. All that exists comes from your hands and you are a great creator for your world and the universe is beautiful to behold. It demonstrates your might, demonstrates uh, your greatness, your majesty. So we worship you and we we praise you in your majesty. We give you thanks, our God, that uh, you are our Redeemer. For though there was the fall that man sinned against you, and ever since then that we have been in rebellion against you, and the world itself is now groaning under the effects of the fall, Yet you did not give us up. You sent to us a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, your Son. And how sweet that name is to us. For in that name we find the forgiveness of our sins. Truly his name soothes our troubled breasts as we are weighed down with many cares many of which are the cares of our own sins that brought upon us. But one care that we need not bear, one trouble that, must, that does not have to weigh upon us, is our standing before you because of the work of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, upon the cross. Because he has died once and for all for all of our sins, And he has exchanged, taking upon himself our sins and giving to us his righteousness. We know that we come even now before you as your beloved children. We do confess that we we do sin, continue to sin, and it grieves us that we continue to break your commandments and there is the the good that that we would do and yet we do not do it. It grieves us how often that we we fail you and how short we we fail to live up to the standard uh, that is expected of us. It's all the more then that we take comfort in Jesus Christ who did live that perfect life, who never sinned, who bore all the temptations we bear yet never failed. And he is our our Savior, our Lord, he is our, our brother. It's not to be ashamed to be called our brother. And he sympathizes with us, even now he serves as our high priest. And even with the, the poor prayers that we offer unto you, what we truly rest in is the intercession that he makes for us and the intercession of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. And we know that they are heard. Fathers, in the light of these things that we come before you and we make petitions, not merely for ourselves, but on behalf of this world that is so troubled. We pray, our Father, for peace in which there is so much violence and hatred and enmity. And we we pray for that work of your Spirit to bring a measure of peace 
and to give the leaders of this world wisdom and knowing how to bring forth justice and to bring peace and to, uh, to bring action against violence. We lift them before you with their great responsibilities. We pray, Father, for uh, parts of this world that have faced great tragedy. We think of the country of Nepal and the earthquake that has claimed thousands of lives. Our Father, we pray for your mercies upon that land, upon those people. And we pray that even now that there may be those who are rescued from death. We pray for your people, for the church that is in Nepal. And we pray for those who may have lost loved ones, your comfort of them. But all the more, we, we pray that you may use your church that is there, your people who are there, to reach out with the love and the hope that is of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for our partners, for Dan and Rebecca Gregoire in Slovakia, and for their work that they have faithfully carried on for seven years. And we pray for their work among uh, the gypsies in that land, and pray that through the practical help and teaching that they are giving, all the more that they will be able to impart the spiritual bread that is Jesus Christ himself. And we pray that there are those who come into your kingdom because of their work there. Our Father, we, we pray for tragedies that have taken place uh, nearby. We lift up the, the families of the, the five nursing students uh, tragically killed in the, in the accident on the, on the interstate. Our Father, we, we, we don't understand these things. We don't understand how those who, can, who confess you, who know you, and uh, could go through such tragic end. It is our comfort that those who know you have entered into your kingdom. We, and we pray that for the comfort of uh, our own church member, of, of Tara Rocker, who's lost a cousin, Abby Deloach. We pray for Abby's family. For your peace and your mercies to be upon her family. We pray that for the, the other four families as well. That somehow, that uh, Father, as the, the verse that, uh, that she had claimed for her own life would some way be made clear for all of us. Of Romans 28, that all things work for the good of those who love you. And you will bring forth good uh, through this tragedy. Our Father, we pray for those grieving the loss of, of loved ones. We lift up Peaches, Hoyle, the loss of her mother, Frank Kemp, the loss of his daughter, Carol Kent, and the, the loss of her brother-in-law. Pray for the Schumachers and uh, the loss of their uh, grandson's uh, friend. And we, you know, we pray again for that work of your Spirit who can only be the one to provide true comfort into our very souls and hearts. And so, our Father, as we continue in worship, is by opening your word, we pray that you will give us the, the eyes to, to see, the minds to understand, that you give us the hearts, that we might have the courage to apply your word to ourselves. And where we need convicting, to, to be convicted, 
We need that comfort that you would so comfort us, that you would exhort us, always to lift us up and appoint us to Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Our scripture passage uh, this morning is Luke uh, 24. And if you're using the, the Bibles that you'll find in the chairs in front of you, you'll find that on page 749. And you'll also find the text as an insert on the back of the Missions Moment insert. And you're welcome to use that. And I, uh, when I preach, I preach uh, from uh, the English Standard Version, and that's the text that's used there in the uh, insert. And you're also welcome to use that for notes. So we're in Luke uh, 24, and uh, I'm going to be reading through the passage as I go along through the sermon. So we'll, we'll just do that as I begin that message. Now I've got a question for you. Have you ever been looking for something that was unfindable? I mean, you just couldn't find it. You know, you, you, you look everywhere. I mean, you go through everything in the house, everywhere, all the drawers. You know, and men, you know, and then, you, then your wife will say to you, well, did you, did you look in your desk drawer? Yes, I've looked in the desk drawer a hundred times. But you look one more time, you open up the drawer, and it's right there. I mean, it is right there in front of your eyes. How did I miss that? Or there's another, another example. You know, you've been trying to understand, you know, what, what, what's just in un- understandable. It just can't be figured out. Maybe it's a puzzle. You know, I like to do crossword puzzles. I just can't figure it out. Or, or just instructions on trying to put something together. Or maybe um, a, a math problem. You remember those old days of having to do those math problems. And then a teacher or a friend comes alongside you and gives you the key to understanding it. And it, and it just suddenly just clicks. Now you understand. And indeed, you wonder again, It was so obvious. How did I not see it all alone? Well, two of Jesus' disciples had that kind of experience, that how did I miss it type of experience that we're going to look at in our text this morning. So let's look at verses. We'll begin with verses 13 and 14. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So we have this image. Two disciples are walking from Jerusalem to a town nearby called Emmaus. And they're talking. And of course, the subject has to do with their master, who had been tragically executed, crucified on that cross, and yet whose body has mysteriously disappeared that very day. What can it all mean? And now Jesus comes alongside of them, beginning in verse 15. So while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? 
who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, all of you teachers, any of you here has been a, been a teacher, you should be able to feel for Jesus at this point, okay? He has been their teacher, okay, for three years. He has taught them time and again about who he, who he was, what to expect was going to take place in Jerusalem, okay? And this is kind of like exam time. The teacher, he's testing his students, and they are plucking the test. It's as if he had never taught them anything. And then one of them, Cleopas, I mean, he, he finds it incredulous that this, this stranger to him could be so ignorant about, about Jesus, not realizing that it's his own ignorance that really is incredulous. Okay. Now note the title that they give for Jesus. They describe him as a man who was a prophet. They had hoped he was the Messiah. That's what is meant by the one to redeem Israel. But his crucifixion, that ended such expectations. Now, even so, he was mighty indeed in word, and that indicates that he was a prophet of God. But what is really bewildering to them now is the disappearance of the body. Okay. Now, some women... You know, they had claimed to have seen angels who had said Jesus was alive, but they were women. After all, you know how women are. They can let their emotions get the best of them. But something, something happened. But what could it have been? Okay. So verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, that means Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now clearly, Jesus has reached his breaking point at this, at this thing. Oh, oh, foolish ones. Oh, oh, slow of heart. Now I want you to note what the next thing he says. He doesn't say slow apart to believe like all that I had been teaching you. Now he could have said that, but he's not ready yet to reveal his identity. That's actually what the angels had told to the women. They had said to the women, remember how he, Jesus, told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Do you get it? Do you get it yet? 
But instead, and this is the point of the passage, okay? This is what we're getting here. Jesus speaks of the prophets, that is, the writers of the scriptures. It's, you're, you're being slow to believe them, to understand them. And so what he's going to now do is take them through the scriptures, through Moses and all the prophets. He's going to interpret the passages that predict, that allude to him and to his work of, of suffering and, and of dying and even of resurrection. That's what it means here by entering into his glory. It's like you can imagine, they're going along the road, and you kind of pick up probably what some of the dialogue was. Don't you see the reference to the Messiah at the very beginning and when God cursed the serpent? Don't you, don't you get that? Cursed on the tree? Well, of course. That's the whole point of the, of the crucifixion. That would, that's what it was necessary to fulfill the law. Here, let's, let's look at the Passover now and go through that. Let's move over to the Day of Atonement. Do you understand now who that scapegoat represents? The suffering servant that Isaiah was speaking about. Do you see now how that connects with the true Messiah? And David. You know, when David writes in his psalm, God will not abandon my soul to Sheol or, or let your Holy One see corruption, he wasn't talking about himself. David died and his body did see corruption there. Yeah, he's referring to the Messiah. Okay. And so he goes on and on and on. And then in verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Now note what it was when their eyes were open. What happened? And he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And they had experienced something like that just three nights before, hadn't they? Where it says he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them up there in that upper room. And suddenly... They see. They understand. It's Jesus. And then he vanishes. Now, let's see what they do afterwards. In verse 32, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So it's all out in the open now. Jesus is risen from the dead. Okay. But I want you to take note here. After Jesus said, you know, to appear to those two disciples and he vanishes. And they make a comment to one another about what had happened to them before they had recognized Jesus. Let me read it again. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he 
open to us the scriptures. Okay? The message of this Emmaus Road story, the lesson of it is, is that the scriptures, for us, we would refer to them as the Old Testament, reveal and explain the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That they're that saying that their hearts burn within them. That was a way of saying this, that inwardly they were stirred up as, as understanding of Scripture took root in them. See, it, it wasn't something about Jesus' voice, because actually they, they didn't recognize it. Okay? It wasn't Jesus' charisma. It was the fact that he was opening up the meaning of the Scriptures. He possessed the key to unlock what had been mysterious. He had provided the correct interpretation to what before had been misinterpreted or just overlooked altogether. And so they're going along the road and the disciples are saying to themselves, yes, yes, now now we see, now we understand. Oh, now it's making sense. And what really would have excited them was that the the sufferings and the death that they thought were so tragic and and proved that he wasn't the Messiah were actually revealing that he was the Messiah. And that means that the the answer to the mystery of the vanishing body, they just, you know, what happened to it, is that the body had been raised from the dead. I mean, no wonder they did not want Jesus to walk on and leave them. I mean, now they're getting to the climax of the most amazing story. And then Jesus, in Acts, the real climax, by himself, he reveals himself and then vanishes. So that takes us through the story of Emmaus. Now, there are two essential lessons to take away from this passage, and I've already been speaking of one of them. One is about what is in Scripture. But the other is also about what is in our hearts. Now let's look first of all about what is in Scripture. Now I'd already noted that unlike the angels who had rebuked the women for not remembering what Jesus had told them about himself, Jesus scolds these two disciples for not remembering or not understanding what the Scriptures had told about him. And again, this is a critical point. The disciples were Jews. They believed. They took seriously the sacred scriptures. And because of the scriptures, they were looking for the Messiah to come. And it was from the scriptures that they they had formed their expectations of what the Messiah would be like and and what he would do. See, the Messiah was not a new concept. It didn't didn't spring out of non-biblical sources. It wasn't just some kind of wishful thinking. But, and so anyone's claim to be the Messiah, that claim would have to be verified by fulfilling what the scriptures had said and had prophesied. So in this case, what Jesus had to do was he had to show the scripture references that verified that the Messiah had to suffer, that he had to be killed, and that he would be raised from the dead. And so he also had to demonstrate how the other interpretations about the Messiah were wrong or at least incomplete. Because everyone else, when they were, when they were looking at the, 
again, what we would call the Old Testament, they thought a Messiah is going to come, he's going to conquer their enemies, he's going to set up this kingdom on earth, meaning that they're going to conquer the Romans and they're going to reestablish and expand the great kingdom of Israel. Well, there is some truth in those expectations. But it's not a full understanding of who the real enemies were. Or what the the kind of kingdom the Messiah was going to establish on his first visit. And indeed, this this concept of two visits that we, we think about, we know about, his first visit, and then we look for the next visit to come. That would not even have been in the mindset of the disciples and all the commentators then. They're only thinking of one visit. But I want you to understand that there is more to proof texting going on here. Jesus is not simply teaching that. He wasn't finding like, kind of like proof text. Like, here's a verse here and here's a passage there that you have a lot of themes in the scriptures and one of them happens to be about the Messiah and, and you know, you could take this one here and, and over here. Now, what he, what he would have been teaching them is that he, the Messiah, is the key that unlocks the meaning of all the scriptures. So he would have systematically taken him through the flow of the scriptures. He would have started there back in in Genesis. He would have explained, for example, how how the historical narratives, all those stories, foreshadowed the Messiah. He would have shown how the, the entire sacrificial system prepared people to understand the work of atonement. He would have shown how the unfulfilled expectations and the unexplained puzzles and and the scriptures, trying to figure them out, would find fulfillment in his coming. And indeed, let me go ahead and, and, and note what we'll be doing in the month of May for the next five Sundays. We'll take a selection of those scriptures that he undoubtedly would have gone through and shown how he would have taught, how you understand those passages by looking to the Messiah. You know, there's a story of a minister who's teaching children. And uh, he, he pulls out a stuffed animal and he asks the children, what does this animal represent? And there's one shrewd child who's, who's been a veteran of the minister's stories and he raises his hand he says, well, I, I don't know how yet, but it must be Jesus. Because whatever he's got, he's going to be about Jesus. Well, so it is with God's Word. Whatever one, wherever one may be in the Scriptures, the sharp mind will be on the lookout for Jesus. Either the Scripture text will present some direct mention of him, it's easy to see, or it'll, make, it'll allude to him, it'll, it'll set the conditions that are necessary for his coming to, to understand what his work is. He's in there in all the pages. That's how we understand the scriptures. So Jesus was opening the scriptures to them, helping them understand what is in the scriptures. The second lesson here has to do with the heart. There's something else needed to take place for these disciples. For Jesus had already been teaching them these things. He'd already forewarned them of his sufferings. He had explicitly said, that I must fulfill the prophets, I must suffer, I must die, I must 
rise from the dead. Okay? But they're still clueless when it all happens. Okay? Now, their eyes have been veiled right now so that they didn't recognize Jesus, and that was not their fault. Okay? Jesus did not want to be recognized, so undoubtedly the Holy Spirit just dimmed their recognition at that time. Okay? But this veil that's been placed over their minds, well, that's not the Holy Spirit's work. That's their own work. I'm going to make a confession here. I had a personal reason for preaching this text. The sermon I most clearly remember is the one that still just aggravates me so much. That's why I remember it so well. It's the one that was preached, it was preached three years ago. And uh, it was down in, down in the south of Florida. And it was the Sunday following Easter. And the associate minister read this passage all the way through the end of the, of the chapter. And she began by commenting on this. She said, look, now, these are Gospels. They're not history. What I'm about to read did not happen. So she begins to read. She gets about to the halfway point, probably at the end of our passage, and says, now, again, this did not take place. Did not happen. Something happened. Don't know what it is, but it wasn't this. She finishes up the chapter and she says again. Now again, this did not happen. Something happened. These did not. I did not want to embarrass my wife or my my in-laws, so I, I I stayed quiet. Now, the preacher gets up there to preach. He's uh, expounding this text, and he wants to explain to us that, first of all, Luke really was not interested in explaining who Jesus was. That's not even really a a topic that he's interested in. Luke did not care about knowing who Jesus was. What he cared about was Jesus' message. And what his message, and he's, he's looked at this passage very carefully, is that we ought to love one another. By the way, we visited that church two months earlier, and guess what the message of that text happened to be? That we should love one another. So I, I think he had a good deal. Didn't have to spend too much work prep, preparing, but okay, I'm getting off base here. All right. I knew that I was in, look, I knew I was in a church, and I knew what to expect. I knew there was going to be a low view here of who Jesus was, of of the truth, of the veracity of Scripture. But there were two aspects of these these minister's statements that just take us beyond just a simple difference of opinion. Now, the first was the, the certainty by which the reader declared unequivocally that what she was reading did not take place. Something significant happened. She can't figure it out, doesn't know. But to, she could be sure that this did not happen. Okay? It's merely a story. How does she know that? How can be the one thing that she is sure of is that what is reported by Luke did not take place? Now, there are things in Scripture, you know, because of of, of different texts. You know, we don't have the original manuscripts. And, you know, someone can say, 
you know, well, in, in one manuscript this is in here and one manuscript is, is not here or, you know, this was probably a later edition or something. That's not true for this passage. Okay? This is, this is it. Okay? Now, the second aspect is the clear, obvious misinterpretation by the preacher of this passage. Okay? Now, it's one thing if he had read this and he said, look, um, I tell you what's happening here. Luke is giving his own interpretation of what happened to that missing body. And, and so he works up this story. And that's what these resurrection stories are here, to kind of explain how the body is missing, and, and, but, but how Jesus' spirit continues to live on. Okay, that's, and so on. That's not what he does. He, he takes Luke's text, which is clearly, obviously, about Jesus rising from the dead, and how the, the Old Testament scriptures foretold that. He takes this text and claims, well, here is what Luke is trying to tell us. Jesus wants us to love everyone. Well, there are many texts where Jesus tells us to love everyone. It's not here. Okay? It's just making it up. And what we have here is a failure to understand what is being clearly communicated by scripture. This is not merely bringing presuppositions to scriptures. And by the way, all of us, when we read the scriptures, bring presuppositions, what we, what we already think we, we know about it. Okay? But this blatantly allows those presuppositions, what they were doing, to veil their minds so that they would understand only what they want to understand. But again, that's to be expected. They do not believe the scriptures to, you know, it's good, it has some truth in it, but they certainly don't believe it to all be true, and they certainly don't take miracles uh, seriously. But here's the irony of the disciples. They did take scripture seriously. They, they believed that it was inerrant. They, they believed in its veracity. And it was because they took scripture seriously that they had been looking for the Messiah in the first place. And yet, you think about this, even though Jesus had taught them ahead of time what was going to happen, even though he had been teaching them from the scriptures, their minds were just as veiled as our two minister friends. Their presuppositions of what the Messiah would do, and by the way, you you know where they got those presuppositions from? It's from the viewpoints of the traditional conservative scholars of their day. That's who they got it from. Those presuppositions have kept their minds veiled, but, but then even when you think about it, is that really the problem? Was it the presuppositions? Or did it have more to do with what they wanted to believe or what they wanted not to believe? So these two skeptical ministers I mentioned, they simply did not want to believe in what this passage actually teaches. Okay, it would have been embarrassing, it would have been inconvenient for them, it would have required too much change on their part. And what tripped up these disciples were this. It was that suffering and crucifixion. Especially that crucifixion. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't handle that. To hang upon a tree is to be cursed of God. Scripture says that, Deuteronomy 21, 23. 
So how could such a thing happen to the Messiah? And so they would say that that's their problem. See, I'm just looking at Scripture. But I really wonder if it's not something really like this. We refuse to believe that God would allow such to happen. We do not want to believe something like that. That's just too awful. I will not consider it. They had hoped. They had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. But the cross, that's too much. That's too much to take. God would not do such a thing. And I will not believe it. Now it asks, what is it that we refuse to believe? Now do be sure there are very important truths upon which we must stand because the scripture is so clear. Jesus died on that cross and he rose from the dead and I will not entertain any other views. Okay. But there is also doctrine that we will not accept. Each of us think about this. Not because we've been convinced by Scripture, but simply because that doesn't fit into the way I want to think of things. God would not do that. So it can't be right. God cannot be that way. And the result is that we falsely interpret Scripture like the preacher, or we even outright deny what it says, like the reader. So the lesson for us is this. When we come across Scripture... That's hard for us to take. All the more then, we need to stay with that and study it. And we need to ask ourselves, why are we so troubled by it? And we need to let the scripture turn around and probe our hearts. We shouldn't be quick to make the interpretation of scripture something that is easy to handle. That was the point I I was making in a previous sermon, in the story of the Canaanite woman whom Jesus makes reference to her children as being like dogs and insults her. And, and I noted then that, you know, commentators are very quick. Well, listen, let me explain this. He really didn't mean that. He was, wasn't such a bad guy. We're trying to be quick to tame Jesus when we are the ones who need to be tamed by him. And if we have presuppositions that need to be broken, then let the scriptures break them. Now, we do the same with Jesus' hard teachings. So, for example, it is Jesus who teaches more than anyone else about hell. It's Jesus. They got all of Jesus' comments. You don't have much in there at all. So what are we going to do with it? Are we going to claim that Jesus, well, Jesus would not have said such things? Or even, here's an even harder example. Jesus teaches us to love and to show mercy to our enemies. Now, I know none of us have enemies here. We can think of a few folks. We can think of a few folks on the other side of the world who are doing some pretty despicable things and so on. But we can think of people whom we, we just despise. Jesus says to love them. And what are we going to do with that? Are we going to reinterpret the definition of an enemy? That's, that's what the, uh, the, the, the lawyer, the um, expert in the law, tried to do with Jesus. Well, who, who's my neighbor? Because he didn't like that idea. Or we're going to be like some interpreters. There are some who says, you know, this is, yeah, he says this, but it applies to another 
dang, the dispensation in the millennium or something when he comes, we don't have to, to follow it today. Because we don't like something, we so easily just dismiss it. Now specifically though, I would ask some of you, do you also refuse to believe that Jesus would have died on the cross for your sins? You just won't believe it. Do you refuse to believe that your sins could be so weighty and would require that kind of payment for your sins? Or do you, do you refuse to believe that you know, Jesus could actually do it? That he could be hung on a piece of wood a couple thousand years ago and that takes care of your sins and, and this thing of rising from the dead? I just can't believe that. Is it too incredible? Does it seem like too much of a fairy tale? Will your presuppositions not allow Scripture to teach you, to probe your heart, to find out if your refusal to believe is really, well, it's, you know, it's just an intellectual thing. I wish I could believe, but you know, it's just too incredible. Or is the problem really a matter of the heart? Scriptures have been opened to you. Will you allow the Scriptures to open your mind? and your heart. We thank you, our God, for your word. Word that is, is true. Your word that is a two-edged sword that divides bone and marrow and, and probes deep into our hearts. May we be as those who will allow that to take place, however painful it may be to ourselves so that we may delve deeper, truly, into the truth of who you are, who our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is, who the Holy Spirit is, of all the great work that you have done for our lives, of how you would have us to live. We may understand the Gospel. We may even begin to examine our own selves. And as we delve into how deep and uh, our, our sins, to see all the, how much wondrous, how much wondrous is the grace, the power of the work of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.